0: This program is made possible by the members and donors of the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestofeleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Countdown with Keith Olbermann, The Progressive, The Young Turks, Jim Hightower, The Bugle, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, Media Matters, Jimmy Dore, On the Media, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. And today's episode does contain a bit of profanity.
1: Finally, has promised, a special comment on President Obama's role in the deal to raise the debt ceiling and perhaps make cuts to or raise the eligibility age for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Face it. We do not take care of one another. Not we as in progressives, not we as in Americans, not we as in the West. We as a species. Individual people we know, we take care of them. It is human nature dating back to the caves to form small protective units, families, clans, groups, guilds, but take care of everybody. Everybody in your neighborhood, the people you love and the people you don't know, everybody in your country, the people who are like you, and the people who have in common with you only humanity, do you take care of them? Do we take care of them? It seems as if we are taught as young children to share, and then as soon as we let go of our parents' hands, we are taught to stop sharing, or to at least stop prioritizing sharing, to stop sharing unconditionally in the broadest sense, where there is no identity or family or clan or group, no hope of reward or mutual defense, no insurance against one's own future hardship. Face it, we do not take care of one another. And that is why the social safety net that this country has stitched together piece by piece over 75 years, despite the unceasing protests of the greedy and the ensconced and the divisive and the xenophobic. That is why the social safety net is this country's greatest accomplishment and the greatest evidence that every once in a while American exceptionalism is based not in flag-waving, but in reality. This is not to say our system of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and everything else is the best, nor was it the first. 3,400,000 people in this country above the age of 65 still live below the poverty line. And 43,600,000 of all ages still do so. But unlike so many other nations unlike what so many in this nation want to see and desperately strive to force. The movement in this country for more than a hundred years has always been forward, has always been just slightly bigger and better than it was yesterday towards the simple idea that those other people you see every day, the background characters, the extras in the movie that is your life, that they count too, and that the only obligation you truly have in life is to try to do something, something for them, even if you will never meet them, even if you will never know them something not everything something every day since i started to think i realized i knew a little less than i thought i did the day before about why we are all here but over time i have come to agree with the baseball player jackie robinson a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives what other measure is there of each one of us You will die, and I will die, and everybody you will see tomorrow will die, and so are the children and their descendants, and we will be at best memories. And by what are all those who preceded us judged? Name anybody in history, name anybody we all know, or somebody only you know. By what are they judged? The answer stripped of the bells and whistles is not wealth, nor fame, nor beauty, nor power, but what impact did they have on the lives of others?
2: The
3: human race, we are big, big dicks. We fuck holes in the world, and fuck everybody else And we fuck because we are lonely We fuck because we are lonely And we ought to give it one more shot We have to save the world And bathe ourselves with love Because love is all we need except that love isn't really all we need we need compassion and we need empathy and we need love a little
4: bit barack obama's gotta stop practicing the politics of surrender he's been waving the white flag so much it's all tattered He surrendered on the original budget stimulus by agreeing to a lower amount than he was advised to propose. He surrendered on universal health care and then on the public option. He surrendered on the Bush tax cuts for millionaires. And now he appears to be surrendering on the debt negotiations, so much so that he's willing to retreat even on Social Security and Medicare. We need a Democrat for this? And what's it gotten him? His surrendering hasn't helped in the polls, as he remains under the 50% mark, nor has his surrendering helped those who are hurting the most in this country the poor, the unemployed, the foreclosed upon, and all working people who haven't seen their income go up even as stocks and profits have skyrocketed. By surrendering, by not presenting stark ideological and policy choices to the American people, he's alienated his progressive base and squandered the rare mandate that he once earned. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
1: This, Mr. President, was not intended to be a sermon. But I find I cannot forecast what will happen politically if you craft a compromise to a manufactured political crisis that includes unnecessary cuts to Social Security and raising the age for Medicare eligibility from 65 to 67. I find I cannot forecast if you will have made yourself unelectable next year or if there's just enough greed and self-serving amnesia to reduce such an attack on that safety net to a political blip I find I can't forecast if the Republicans will then somehow call off their 24-7 character assassination of you. I find I cannot forecast if the rest of us, battered by your compromises here and your it's-a-starts there, will bother any longer to defend you. I find I can't forecast if I will still be able to support you. But I can forecast this. Any true greatness of this nation originates entirely in whatever spark of humanity and selflessness we devote to taking care of the least of us. Any claim we have to lead, to encourage, to inspire other nations starts with whether we continue to move forward each year, each day, each minute towards a time when we have no hunger in this country, when we have no poverty in this country, when we have no old people eating dog food in this country, when we have no patient in this country deciding between meals and medicines. To paraphrase Jackie Robinson, the life of a nation, Mr. President, is not important except in the impact it has on the lives of its people. And if this deal with the Republicans takes a dollar away from those people who do not have a dollar to spare while preserving the millions for those who have millions more, if this deal, sir, keeps intact funding the mechanisms we have for killing people while cutting the mechanisms we have for keeping people alive and healthy, then it is a betrayal of everything that makes this country great. And, Mr. President, then it is worse than just a betrayal of all those who elected you. It is a betrayal of who you are and who you have spent your life becoming. For your presidency, sir, is not important, except in the impact it has on other lives.
5: So the gang of six, of course, was initially uh, three Republicans, three Democrats. One well, of the Republicans left, uh, but nonetheless, as you heard from Bernie Sanders, uh, the plan wound up being incredibly pro-Republican. In fact, as he uh, called it, it was—and I call it—it's a dream come true for the Republicans. Now, why do we say that? First of all, uh, when you look at Social Security, uh, they say that it it will go down by about thirteen hundred dollars a year for the recipients over their lifetimes if uh it is put into uh, effect uh, there's the chain CIA, there's the colas, etc. What it does is it, it slowly takes away more and more of your money, as Senator Sanders explained on The Young Turks here. Over the first 10 years, it might be $500 in reductions. Next 10 years, $1,000, and some estimates are putting it at $1,300 overall. Now that is a massive cut to your Social Security, Social Security that you have already paid into, and that has a 2.6 trillion dollar surplus. There is no reason in the world to cut Social Security, but they've done it anyway. The Republicans have to be ecstatic. They also cut Medicare and Medicaid. And when the Republicans went to go chop Medicare, Democrats were ecstatic. They ran ads, and they even won a, uh, the 26th district in New York, which was heavily uh, Republican. They won there because they said the Republicans are cutting Med- Medicare, and it was true. So, what did the Democrats do? They helped them by saying, We're going to cut Medicare as well. Now, I should pause here to tell you, everybody in Washington is praising this to no end. Harry Reid called it a wonderful plan. Uh, Joe Manchin was in favor of it. Susan Collins was in favor of it. And they're saying we might get 50, we might even get 60 senators. It might even be easy to get this plan through. Okay. And of course, instantly, President Obama came out and said that he was very pleased with the plan and thought it was uh, really strong. Okay. So, uh, why are democrats so in favor of all these massive cuts well there must be tax increases right i mean because you have to be balanced you can't just hit the middle class you can't just hit retirees you have to have shared sacrifice from the upper class as well right wrong again bob now they claim that they're going to take away some deductions i believe that part and they say that that's going to raise some revenue okay great but remember, the deductions are deductions that all of us use the home mortgage deduction, charitable deductions, et cetera. So that hits the middle class pretty damn hard. Where do the tax cuts go to? And yes, believe it or not, even though President Obama said he was going to go back to the Clinton rates and take away the Bush tax cuts. No, right now the Democrats and the plan that President Obama is praising is actually going to give you tax cuts. I'm sorry, it's not going to give you tax cuts. I should clarify. It's going to give the rich tax cuts. So when you look at the top uh, federal income tax bracket, it according to this plan will go down from 35% to 29%. The rich enjoy your tax cuts. Don't worry, the middle class will be paying for it with tax increases and spending cuts. And if you think that's bad, well, how about corporate income taxes? Well, that goes down from 35 percent all the way down to anywhere between 23 to 29 percent for the top bracket. So corporations, oh, pop the champagne! You gotta love this plan. No wonder everybody in Washington is ecstatic over it. So in the end, what do we have? We, have, by the way, I didn't even get into all the other cuts. There's the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and then they, you know they're cutting. Here, let me give you some of the examples. Uh federal employee pensions, curbs in the growth of military health care, and retirement costs. By the way, yes, we said get cut military spending. We meant useless, you know, helicopters and submarines that we literally do not use. We didn't mean cut the the pensions of, uh, of veterans. We didn't mean cut the health care of veterans that you send into endless wars. But that's what this has got. Washington is ecstatic. Um Health care programs, of course, they get cut by Billions, overall500 billion dollars, there500 billion dollar down payment right away in cuts. So check huge spending cuts. Republicans are ecstatic. Check huge cuts in, in what they call entitlement spending. By the way, you're, it's called entitlement because you're entitled to it. You paid into it, right? Sad day, they're taking it away. And on top of that, if all that wasn't bad enough, we'll take away some deductions that hit all the tax brackets, but then give all the tax rewards to the top brackets and corporations. This plan, I mean, a Republican couldn't have drawn it up any better. He said, it's perfect for the Republicans. So, what do the Democrats do? They are beside themselves in supporting it, except for a few. Senator Sanders obviously thinks it's disastrous, and he's gathered up, he says, about eight to ten senators, and tomorrow they're going to meet to try to figure out how the hell they can fight against this and fight back. And he said it on this show he needs your help. He needs the cavalry. If the po- American public does not rise in their righteous fury against this plan, it's going to go through. Because both sides are playing you. It's good cop, bad cop, okay? And the good cops are not on your side. It's a trick to get your money from you. And the good cops are called Democrats, the bad cops are called Republicans, and they're coming to rob you. And this is the plan to do it. And by the way, if you had, you know, with President Obama praising this plan, <laughs> right left and center literally if you had any hope that president obama was a progressive <laughs> look you got to understand something a republican president couldn't have gotten any of this stuff through now it's in the beginning stages but you can tell from the orgy of excitement in washington over it It's coming. There's the only person, only people who can stop it is you. If you are furious over it and you demand that President Obama backpedal from this, you know, he does bow to pressure. And then, of course, he'll take credit for boldly standing up against it when he initially said he loved it, right? That would be ideal. I would love that. And I would love for him to come out and blame the left, the professional left, to go, oh, I can't believe they said all that stuff about me. See, I didn't sign it. That would be my dream come true. But unfortunately, as things stand now, He is definitely looking forward to passing this, and it is going to be, honestly, worse than what a Republican president could have done, because if it was a Republican president, the Democrats would have opposed them on just politics. They've opposed Social Security cuts before when we had a Republican president. This is a worst-case scenario. How's that change working out for you?
6: No, shout Republican leaders at President Obama, like pouty two-year-olds. We won't raise the government's statutory debt limit in order to avoid a national default, they cry. Four whiny GOP congressional leaders, John Boehner and Eric Cantor in the House, Mitch McConnell and John Kyle in the Senate, insists that it'd be the height of irresponsibility to raise America's debt ceiling without first slashing spending on programs for the poor and middle class, while simultaneously protecting big oil and hedge fund billionaires from any increase in their paltry tax rates. What the four pious partisans don't say is that their pose of resolute fiscal responsibility is an entirely new shtick for them, and they're hoping that you won't remember the Bush years. George W. had strutted into office promising to eliminate the $6 trillion federal debt in 10 years. Instead, he rushed America into his budget-sucking Iraq escapade, handed unwarranted tax cuts to corporations and the super-rich, and oversaw a devil-may-care deregulation of Wall Street that caused our economy to crash. To cover these achievements, Bush had to get Congress to jack up the federal debt ceiling, not once, but five times in eight years. Far from eliminating the national debt, he expanded it by $4 trillion. Guess who was side-by-side with him on this joyride? Boehner, Cantor, McConnell, and Kyle. That's who. Not only did they gleefully vote again and again for Bush's war, tax giveaways to the rich, and coddling of Wall Street greed, but also to keep raising the debt limit. Kyle voted for four of Bush's five debt ceiling increases, while Boehner, Cantor, and McConnell had a perfect 5-for-5 record. This is Jim Hightower saying, these crybabies aren't against debt, they're against Obama. And the games they're playing with the national budget are putting party politics over country.
7: to keep an eye on in the near future now, US debt ceiling, the roof, the roof, the roof is really close. <laughs>
8: Andy, everyone goes the you So have you been phases. going to cheerleading classes,
7: John? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to answer that twofold, Andy. One, I'm going to plead the fifth. And two, I will say on a personal level, I have not not been going to cheerleading <laughs> classes. Uh, Everyone, Andy, goes through phases where they don't want to open their bank statements for fear of what is inside the envelope. And to put it mildly, there must be a lot of unopened statements piling up on the White House doormat at the moment. If Timothy Geithner has not already been shoving them unread into a kitchen drawer. America likes to find ways to make everything big. They like their cars large. They like their food medically inadvisably huge. And they like their debt unprecedentedly massive. Except it turns out that they actually don't like it that way anymore. They currently have a debt ceiling of $14.3 trillion, but they're going to need to raise that ceiling by the 2nd of August, or they will risk defaulting on their loans and plunge the world into the economic downhill ride of its whole life. In response to this, the top rating agency Moody's has said it may cut the US AAA debt rating, citing the rising possibility that the US could default on its debt obligations. And if any of that happens, Andy, things are going to get pretty fing medieval around here
8: pretty <laughs> fing fast. Are they going to basically just have to sell off all the land they bought in the Louisiana Purchase?
7: Well, it's well, I just think everyone's going to presume that they're just going back to the start. There's going to be another gold rush. And <laughs> I certainly would not want to be a Native American, Andy, because I think they may be getting driven off those casinos. <laughs> the The Republicans here are blocking the debt ceiling rise happening uh, in a game of what's amounted to negotiating chicken to see who will blink first between them and the White House. Uh, The Democrats want the ceiling raised and to pay for this by closing tax loopholes on the wealthiest American citizens. The Republicans are willing to raise the debt ceiling but only if there are no raises in tax. In fact, they would like some tax cuts in return alongside major cuts to government services. And this negotiation has been going on in the Cabinet Room of the White House and talks ended Wednesday night with, depending on who you listen to, President Obama either storming out due to anger or strolling out due to the meeting being over. And But <laughs> 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 <When> it's so <laughs> hard to tell with his body language. So isn't it? It's so hard. It's so difficult. I have to say Andy also, I've in, very strangely I've actually seen that cabinet room myself on a tour of the White House and it's not big that is not a big room Andy that is a small room to put that amount of tension into so it wouldn't be surprising if a man stormed out in anger or indeed strolled out due to a meeting being over now th- The two stories came out the following day in classic he said, he said variations. Eric Cantor, the Republican, uh, claimed that Obama pushed his chair back and said, enough is enough, I'll see you all tomorrow, before leaving the room. Which is really stretching the term storming out to its snapping point. That is leaving, in the circumstances, heroically politely. I don't think anyone would have blamed President Obama for saying, enough is enough, I'll see you all tomorrow. <clears throat> and incidentally, Eric, you are a total cunt. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Eric, good luck trying to exaggerate that statement to the press outside. Night-night. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, President Obama has said he wants congressional leaders to find agreement on the path forward in the next 24 to 36 hours. And if that doesn't happen, he says... The negotiations will have to continue into the weekend. So that's his threat. That's his threat, Andy. I think he's about as good at brinksmanship as he is at storming out of rooms.
8: <laughs> that's fourteen point three trillion the borrowing limit at the moment. That's um, yeah, yeah. It's quite a lot, isn't it? Um, it's
7: it's a lot of wonga, Andy. That's, yeah. uh, that is a, 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 an impressive amount of benjamins.
8: But I guess you know, chucking another three or four trillion on top of that. Yep. You're not really gonna notice that, are you? Doesn't really matter. Doesn't you really know, matter, Andy. Well, it's like the difference between a fifty stone man and a fifty-two stone man? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Either way, you're winching him out of his window. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he is a defenestration logistical nightmare. <laughs> Maybe that's why so many seventeenth century politicians were so fing fat. Just it was an anti defenestration <laughs> move. Yep they could indeed uh, be forced to sell some of the Louisiana purchase land back to France which uh, could be absolutely fantastic news for the bicycle garlic and berry manufacturing sectors <laughs> in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs>
9: The problem with the game of political chicken that the Democrats and Republicans play with each other is they're really hardly playing with each other. They're really playing with us. I'll let this train hit this poor, unsuspecting American voter if you don't do what I want. I mean, you know, they're very uh, willing to throw us on the table during the gambling. Um, But this latest endeavor which is about as unimportant as american politics gets understand something folks this may be your first will threaten uh, to shut down the government uh occurrence in your political memory but i've lived through it before and those of us who remember what it's like understand that there's a certain truism about politics when the crisis is something that's manufactured by the very people who have the tools to get us out of the crisis at any time if they want to you don't have to worry about it The crises you need to worry about are the ones that get no attention paid to them. And that even if a miracle happened tomorrow and everyone agreed that they needed to be solved and they got down to work, they would have years of tough, hard work ahead of them to do anything about it. Our worst problems are not so easily fixed. The easily fixed ones go away remarkably quickly. All these Republicans and Democrats would have to do is decide, "Uh uh-oh, and... In five minutes, the checks could be rolling again, which is what's going to happen at some point, and it might even be a couple of days after the deadline passes. It won't matter. These people have too much power over fixing the problem and too many reasons to want to do it as the game of chicken becomes more real. The part of the story that was interesting to me has nothing to do with the actual debt ceiling fiasco, this partisan-created entity. Um, It has to do with the reaction of one particular person... I like to call him the best argument for term limits in the American Senate um, and how he thought of a cool way to, you know, avoid the Republicans getting blamed for any of this. The person I'm talking about is Senator Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, and what he basically came up with was an idea to sort of have a vote on not raising the debt ceiling and then the president could veto that and it wouldn't look like the republicans had anything to do with raising the debt ceiling brilliant right and there are quotes out there in the news media from other republicans who although they may have been a little uncomfortable with the slippery nature of the maneuvers thought it was a good idea and as we get closer and closer to this mythical self-imposed you know, politician-created deadline, um, they seem more and more willing to adopt an idea that's transparently a shell game because it's a cool, useful shell game. Gets them out of a jam, and who cares? Um, There's a certain implied aspect to this McConnell move, and that's that the voters aren't watching anyway, so who cares? The part that bothered me so much about what Mitch McConnell did is not that he did it, because all through American history, these kinds of people have done backroom deals like this. It's that he did it right in front of us. He held news conferences. He did interviews. He told us all he was doing it. You don't tell people you're going to do a shell game. You don't tell the very people you want to make sure don't know about it, right? What this shows you is that Mitch McConnell knows that the people who are going to really be the deciding factor in the election next year are not the people who are paying attention to any media outlet where this maneuver of his would be exposed. That's wild when you think about it. And this is only the latest. I mean, both parties have been doing this for a while where you turn around and go, Hey, you know, this is open. I mean, why are you doing this so openly? You're only doing it this openly, these, these maneuverings which you used to be ashamed of. You do them behind closed doors so no one found out. And you would punish a leaker who exposed something like that. And we do it right in front of you now. You know why? Because if you're watching, you're not the target audience. The people who are watching and paying attention are not the ones deciding elections. The ones seeing campaign ads are the ones who are deciding elections. More on that in a second. Um... First, a little bit more on the McConnell move, just because it's so stunning. This is a New York Times um, piece on the subject, and uh, it highlights the absolute, almost flipping off those of us who are watching, level of this kind of political shenanigans that both parties play, and that during more you know, fat and happy times, maybe we could get away with, maybe in the 1990s you can threaten to shut down the government, no big deal. Our situation right now has much more, you know, chance of something disastrous happening we have a lot less room for you know mistakes today than back then but we're playing the same games we would have played as though everything was just fine oh this is <laughs> this is just a game this is how we do it in washington dc no big deal i mean that's what they're really like folks but that's not what you get here's what the um new york times talks about with mcconnell this is from a july 13th 2011 edition of the paper uh the stories by carl hulse And from the middle of the piece, talking about Mitch McConnell and his plan to get the Republican, as the story says, fingerprints off of this debt ceiling problem should anything go wrong. Quote. McConnell was still pushing his plan that would allow a debt limit increase to clear Congress without Republican fingerprints and without the guaranteed cuts many in his party are demanding. He would establish an elaborate process where Congress would vote to disapprove instead of approve a debt limit request, allowing the president to raise the debt ceiling via a successful veto of the disapproval if it came to that. The story continues. Despite resistance from conservatives and the initial unease many lawmakers expressed at such a slippery approach, the McConnell gambit was gaining credence as the best escape hatch. End quote. The story then goes on to point out that the Senate Democrats and the president, while it may not be their favorite thing, they're OK with that, too. This is how I mean, it doesn't matter that it's a trick on the American people. Both sides are OK with it. Especially as we get closer to this mythical deadline, the story continues, quote, Some of McConnell's colleagues were coming around to it, meaning McConnell's slippery move, as the reality of a possible default began to sink in. Quote, I strongly support Senator McConnell's efforts to avoid a default on our nation's debt and the last case emergency proposal he outlined yesterday to ensure that Republicans aren't unduly blamed for failure to raise the debt ceiling, said Senator John McCain, Republican from Arizona. McCain used to be a guy, by the way, remember, folks, we called a maverick and you thought of him as a ramrod straight stand up guy. He's in on this BS, too. And BS is exactly what it is. As a matter of fact, um, Mitch McConnell's going on conservative talk radio programs straight up saying this is all about the next election from later on in the New York Times piece, quote, Recounting how the 1995 government shutdown helped Bill Clinton win re-election the following year, McConnell said any impasse that drives down the nation's credit rating and leads to government checks being delayed could have the same result for Obama. Quote, he will say Republicans are making the economy worse, McConnell said in an interview with the conservative radio show host Laura Ingram. It is an argument that he could have a good chance of winning and all of a sudden we have co-ownership of the economy. That's a very bad position going into the election. End quote. I'm sorry, folks, I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now, when could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for. And what's more, everyone, I mean, they're all okay with this maneuver, including Democrats, with this maneuver that's a scam. It's a sneaky way to avoid looking like you caused the whole debt ceiling thing when, let's be honest, the Republicans are the ones who said, listen, we have this debt ceiling coming and we won't budge unless you make all these cuts and then, you know, then you won't be able to spend. By the way, let's realize that the Republicans are not just screwing over um Liberals and Democrats by, you know, pawning off the responsibility. They're screwing the Tea Party folks. They're screwing all those people who, you know, they basically managed to get some of their agenda in the ears, maybe pockets of some Republican legislators. And now when it comes to it, they've got a sneaky way of sort of, you know, backstabbing them. And while liberals may enjoy the schadenfreude of watching the backstabbing occur, at the same time, what's really disgusting Is that they're totally open about these kinds of maneuvers confident in the thought that in one year we will have forgotten it or even more confident that the majority of people who are going to decide the election in one year never saw it in the first place because they weren't watching because they don't watch politics because they're uninformed by choice or otherwise
0: This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Seth Michaels. With the deadline to raise the debt ceiling approaching, Fox News and the right-wing media are coming up with creative ways to paint the president in a negative light. Exhibit A, the metaphor.
10: That's the problem with being president. You love raising the debt ceiling. It's like a wife and her credit cards. Americans
9: have to be the husband that takes the credit card and breaks it up. Call him the parental president. But can he force feed the GOP a diet of more spending?
0: Though lacking in literary flair, Rush Limbaugh's rhetoric on this topic is arguably more insidious.
11: Exhibit B, the conspiracy theory. Now, he has said he wants to change it. He doesn't, he doesn't, of course, say he wants to destroy it, he just says he wants to change it. Okay, so I've said he wants to destroy it, he said he wants to change it. If there is a collapse or a default, it's something that he wants and has planned.
3: Christine Alenpour said, aren't we glad that the Republicans got the president in a position where he wants to cut Medicare and Social Security? And this is what Donna Brazil says. Let's play it. There's no question. By coming into the debate at the time the president uh, showed up, the Republicans had already framed the narrative, and it's cut, cut, cut. She's just admitting that, yeah, the, the, the Republicans are running the debate. Mm-hmm. They've framed the so, narrative. So when Barack Obama comes out at his press conference and says, everybody has to give a little. Well the problem with that is that Barack Obama is already starting from a position where he already gave a bunch. Mm-hmm. So what, what he's supposed to do, what, what this, if he would have framed the debate instead of the Republicans, mm-hmm. the, the framing of the debate should be how much are we going to tax the, the millionaires and billionaires? How much are we going to tax? Barack Obama wants to raise it 5%, they only want to raise it 2%. That should be the debate. The debate shouldn't be, which is what the Republicans want, we, how much are we going to cut from Medicare and Medicaid? That's the debate right now. The mm-hmm. debate should be shifted, and Barack Obama has the oratory skills to do it, but here's why he doesn't do it. Here's my theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, my theory is that uh, I, 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 he grew up black in a, a black guy in a, in a white, wh- white world, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what that's right. like.
11: Well, any black person grows up black in a white world,
3: uh, I pretty guess much. And yeah. Pretty much, right? Especially in America. So yeah. I don't know what that's like. But I know to get ahead... In the world, he, he circulated at Ivy League schools. Mm-hmm. He was always around huge rich people, mm-hmm. right? Elites, right? right? All the time. And uh, you don't get ahead around, uh, with those people mm-hmm. if you stir it up. No. You know the way you get ahead, the way you become the first uh, African American editor of the Harvard Law Review, mm-hmm. is by being, a, is by being a black guy who makes the white elite comfortable. Mm-hmm. He doesn't make them uncomfortable or challenge them. Or, so that I just think that's the way the gears work in his mm-hmm. head. And so, oh, we have a problem. Let's start from a position of. Com- I'll show them that they can feel comfortable with me. And it, right. and I. I it, I'm not, it's like a, it's just like a sad fact of reality that that's what, it would, it's going to take a, uh, it would have taken an African-American to be that way mm-hmm. to get elected in the first place. Right.
11: Right. If so, because if he was. Well, also be the first African-American president, you have to be Jackie Robinson. And you that's know, what you I'm saying. To, you have to take, you can't fight back a thing. You have to be affable and take everything, you know. He's, he's And that's yes. how he's always been. And it's not a surprise that he's, that he's like that, you know. It's not a he, Well, it he is. He was like that through the campaign. And um,
3: it's not a surprise when you. When you stop to think about it, but it's certainly a surprise the way it works out in his policy mm. choices. That that mm-hmm. is a
11: surprising to everyone. because uh, so Well, you know, but it's almost as if he's like, well, you know, I have to be this way, but maybe one day I'll achieve a position of power and I can do something. <laughs> well, you know what? You're the president of the United States. It's you know. I maybe one him. day.
3: Here's Donna Brazil's most telling clip of
11: all. Okay, mm-hmm. this will be clip number thirteen. Lucky number thirteen in Italy. Let's go. Now <laughs> let the record show, as Donna points out, that the president came out for a tax cut that is extending the tax cut on well he's come up with
3: seventeen taxes. tax cuts and the republicans oppose sixteen of them so he's he's been walking your walk but not talking your talk clearly
11: <laughs> what well, is he an AA now? I don't, <laughs> I don't get the she whole walking. She just admitted
3: said, hey he's try- he put seventeen tax cut proposals mm-hmm. on the table mm-hmm. he is trying to be a republican mm-hmm. I mean he's doing everything republicans want him to do she mm-hmm. just said that. Right. She just said he's walking your walk. He's doing. He's governing like a Republican, mm-hmm. and you guys still don't like it. Of course. They
11: That's get. the sad thing. Is as much as he's trying to be the facilitator and the and and the consensus builder, they just won't accept him no matter what. It's just sad. Mm-hmm.
3: It's just really sad, and it's very gross. Uh, the one thing that you would expect that Barack Obama to act like is a Democrat. And, uh, you know, in, in good times, it's forgivable for a Democrat to act like a Republican, like Bill Clinton in the late Mm. 90s when he acted like a Republican all those, all those years. But it's, it's really unforgivable in, when we're in the countries in dire straits Mm. to then keep forwarding Republican policies. At some point you have to stop being a Republican and you have to start doing what's good for America.
12: Please! Poli- Paralysis in Washington brings the nation ever closer to default. The press has had little trouble covering the brinksmanship over the nation's debt ceiling.
13: Leaders from both political parties
12: still struggling to reach a deal to raise the nation's debt ceiling. A bipartisan deficit reduction
0: deal appears more and more unlikely.
12: Here's the prevailing media narrative the Republicans want the government to live within its means, like ordinary Americans. The Democrats want the wealthy who enjoy disproportionately low tax rates to pay their fair share. And Washington is playing a serious game of chicken that the president, as the nation's in loco parentis in chief, seems unable to stop. That's the narrative in which every statement is viewed from the prism of politics. Here's President Obama, followed by GOP presidential hopeful Michelle Bachmann. I cannot
14: guarantee that those checks go out on August 3rd if we haven't resolved this issue, because there may simply not be the money in the coffers to do it.
13: We were all shocked and appalled that President Obama dangled out in front of the cameras that senior
12: citizens may not get their checks. That's a very dangerous statement to make. The fiscally conservative British news magazine The Economist wrote this week that Republicans are, quote, clinging to the position that not a single cent of deficit reduction must come from a higher tax take. This is economically illiterate and disgracefully cynical.
15: But The Economist was unusual in addressing the economic arguments at all. The media's obsession with the debt drama has left many Americans confused about the underlying economic realities. As U.S. News & World Report's chief business correspondent Rick Newman wrote recently, outside the Beltway, there is some consensus. Many economists, corporate CEOs, and those on Wall Street can agree that the debt ceiling situation needs to be resolved and quick with a combination of spending cuts and increased taxation. The economic consensus, though, is buried in the drama of the political showdown. The question is, if there is so little to debate, why obsess about the debate? Rick Newman says that all the coverage the public needs is there, if the audience is willing to sift through all the irrelevancies to find it. But the media are once again trapped in the losing
16: proposition of giving equal time and equal respect to all parties. If it has a claim to objectivity, it has to treat each position with equal credibility and the way that that's playing out in this debate is over this issue of taxes. Most economic experts or mainstream economists say there is no way to solve this problem without a combination of spending cuts and tax increases, but the republicans are digging in their heels and saying no tax increases and President Obama has basically said he will accept something that is about 75% spending cuts and 25% tax increases. That is a moderate position based on the whole range of recommendations we've seen, but the media is struggling with how to relate to that. So they have to say Obama on one hand and these Republicans on the other hand, and that's where uh, I think people get pretty confused. What if –
15: and this is just a suppose, but what if this is a case as we have seen in other issues – uh, let's say climate change, for example, where well, one side is right, the other side is just flatly wrong. But because the situation is so politicized, the press can't just categorically say, you know, this side is right. Let's just say what the nation requires right now is a combination of deep spending cuts and modest tax gains. What if reality has a liberal bias?
16: <laughs> is the press capable of dealing with that? That is a tough one for the press because the stereotype is the press is liberal and the press tries to prove that it's not. And it does recall the debate about WMD leading up to the Iraq war in the New York Times and others were criticized for not being tough enough on um, claims that Iraq had WMD Uh, and there is – some likelihood that the reason they weren't tough is because they didn't want to seem too liberal or too partisan on the liberal side. And we may be in that situation now, specifically with regard to this question of should there be some tax increases to help close the deficit? Is it possible that the press is actually incapable of performing its
15: function of informing its audiences because it would be dismissed – as as simply propagandizing for the uh,
16: president and the Democratic Party. There is definitely this sort of journalistic whiplash that uh, reporters get when they, they're trying so hard to be fair that they feel like maybe they're not uh, giving people the best information or guiding them to the best information. But I think that if we really do get closer to the blink moment when it does look like we may actually have to start cutting spending by that 40% and the borrowing limit may not be raised. I think that's the point at which the press will get a little more uh, diligent about figuring out, okay, who's re- who do we really fault for this? Um, but at the moment, we are getting this on the one hand, on the other hand type of reporting. So the burden is on citizens to remain informed. And it takes a lot of work to st- stay informed about complicated issues like this.
15: Rick, thank you. My pleasure. Rick Newman is chief business correspondent for US News and World Report.
13: On November 1st, 1983, then-President Ronald Reagan wrote in his diary, Dear Diary, Day began with GOP congressional leadership, a full cabinet room. Last night, the Republican Senate, very irresponsibly, refused to pass an increase in the debt ceiling, which is necessary if we are to borrow and keep the government running. After we gave them all a rundown on Lebanon and Grenada, we took up the budget and the necessary legislation. I sounded off and told them I'd veto every darn thing they sent down unless they gave us a clean debt ceiling bill that ended the meeting. Okay, first of all, Ronald Reagan would swear when he wrote in his diary, but he would not write out the full swear word so as not to scandalize his diary. So when he said, when I said that he said every darn thing, what was actually in the diary? What Ronald Reagan actually wrote in the diary was d--n. Every d--n thing. He said he'd veto every darn thing the Republicans sent to him unless they gave him a clean debt ceiling vote. Or maybe it was something even worse than every darn thing. We will never know because that's how he wrote it in his diary. While Ronald Reagan was president, the nation raised the debt ceiling 18 separate times. 18 times. This week, House Democrats circulated a radio address from Ronald Reagan from 1987, from one of those times that they were raising the debt ceiling. They circulated this Reagan radio address to try to encourage today's Republicans that even if they can't believe the Trilateral Commission, Bilderberg Group, Democratic Party, all caps, crazy font, communists who are saying it today, perhaps they could believe the saint ronald reagan when he explained how important it is to raise the debt ceiling
1: congress consistently brings the government to the edge of default before facing its responsibility this brinkmanship threatens the holders of government bonds of those who rely on social security and veteran benefits interest rates would skyrocket instability would occur in financial markets and the federal deficit would soar The United States has a special responsibility to itself and the world to meet its obligations.
10: Yes, but of
13: course Ronald Reagan was a noted communist long-haired hippie. Uh, It is important to recognize that this is the state of debate right now in half of Washington. In half of Washington, the Democrats are using Ronald Reagan from the 80s and everything else they can think of to try to convince Republicans that defaulting on the national debt would be bad. (laughs) On that Think about that for a second. On the House side, the conversation could not be more basic. It's like, e- economy blow up? Bad thing! America's sad if economy blow up. Economy blow up? No. I mean, why, why? Well, that is the level of discussion in one half of Washington, would you like to explode the economy? Think twice. That's where we're at with one half of Washington. But the other half of Washington is sort of pretending that... That's not really happening at all in the House. The other half of Washington had the president today going before the White House press corps to appraise a complicated, very conservative plan agreed to by a bipartisan small group of senators with three-part spending cuts to one-part revenue increases. That is a big corporate tax cut and tax cuts for the rich, but closing some loopholes and controlling some costs and so on. The president and the gang of six senators and apparently a lot of other senators besides were very excited today on their half of Washington. Very excited today in their half about their very conservative, very bipartisan deficit reduction plan that they think they can all sign on to as a path toward raising the debt ceiling. And I'm sure that was a very edifying discussion about their bipartisan, conservative, go-along-to-get-along big Senate plan, which the president likes. But it is not the president and the Senate who need to get together to decide this thing. It's the president and the Senate and the drunk kids at the other end of the building who are setting their barbies on fire and cooking metal in the microwave until it explodes! Watch it burn! Watch it burn! Honestly, it is time for a reality check here. House Republicans are not trying to drive a hard bargain and get the best Republican deal possible in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. House Republicans do not want to raise the debt ceiling for anything. They would please not like to raise the debt ceiling. They would like to go into default, thank you very much. House Republicans have been actively making that argument for weeks now, that hitting the debt ceiling, ah, that won't hurt a bit, who cares? Republican Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama actually told the Washington Post this week that on the contrary, quote, our credit rating should be improved by not raising the debt ceiling. Which is a little like saying you're looking forward to how that sledgehammer is going to improve your dental work. Another Republican congressman, Rick Crawford of Arkansas, says after a catastrophic default and financial crisis, the government can just move some money around to fix things for a while. Quote, that wouldn't work for just a few days, that would work for a few years. Mr. Crawford adding that it's a, quote, arrogant attitude to take to say that the U.S. defaulting on our debt for the first time in history would be any sort of economic big deal. Republican Congressman Tim Wahlberg of Michigan, apparently in agreement, he told The Washington Post that it is time to, quote, hold the line, by which he means we should default. Just go for it. Republican Alan West of Florida says President Obama is fear-mongering on the debt ceiling that it is really nothing to be afraid of. And those Republican members of Congress are not alone on this. This is a misnomer that I believe that the President and the Treasury Secretary have been trying to pass off on the American people, and it's this, that if Congress fails to raise the debt ceiling by $2.5 trillion, that somehow the United States will go into default and we will lose the full faith and credit of the United States. That is simply not true.
4: You would think that a responsible leader in this country would make sure that we encouraged bondholders, that we encouraged people who held our debt, you don't have to worry about anything. The only thing you guys have to fear is fear itself, because we're going to stand good for it.
13: Sure, we're going to default, but we're going to stand good for it, whatever that means. Everybody should feel better. All of the Beltway Gang of Six excitement today about this plan in the Senate is proceeding as if Congress all understands that there is a reason to act and act quickly, that the country will start to default on its debt and shut down on August 2nd, that the August 2nd deadline is real and it is bearing down on us. That is the assumption with all this excitement about the Gang of Six thing today. But frankly, you cannot take that for granted today. You cannot take it for granted that Congress, in fact, understands this. Over in the House, you want to know what they think the August 2nd deadline is? Do you want to know where they suspect this whole August 2nd deadline thing might have come from? Here's where they think it came from.
17: I can't help and uh, be a little cynical here because, you know, we find out the president has a big birthday bash scheduled for August the 3rd. Celebrities flying in from all over. And lo and behold, August 2nd is the deadline for getting something done so that he can have this massive, maybe the biggest fundraising uh, dinner in history for a birthday celebration.
13: See, the president made up this fake deadline of August 2nd, put it on the calendar for his birthday to please celebrities who would be coming to his birthday party. The problem we have here now, as Ronald Reagan might say, is the problem of irresistible force about to meet an immovable object. The irresistible force is the, it's the crazy. It's the voices in the heads of Republicans in the House telling them, default? That sounds like defun. Let's do it. It's the let's burn the whole thing down chaos conference. It's the denialist conspiracy theory nonsense among House Republicans, even among House Republicans who are running for president. That means that they are not going to vote to raise the debt ceiling no matter what the deal is. It's that irresistible force meeting the immovable object of the actual debt ceiling. That is a real deadline that is upon us.
14: We're in the 11th hour, uh, and we don't have a lot uh, more time left. We don't have any more time to uh, engage in symbolic gestures. We don't have any more time uh, to posture. Uh, It's time to get down to the business of actually solving this problem.
13: President Obama also said today, and I I think this was a very important point, actually. He said that so far, throughout these negotiations, we have essentially been given a pass by the financial markets. But he said that could fall apart really quickly when it does start to fall apart. And that's what we are coming up on now. Listen to the president make that case here.
14: So far, at least, uh, the markets have shown confidence that uh, leadership here in Washington uh, are not going to... Uh, send the economy over a cliff. Uh, But uh, if we continue to go through a lot of political posturing, if both sides continue to be dug in, uh, if we don't have uh, a basic spirit of cooperation that allows us to rise above uh, immediate election year politics uh, and actually solve problems, then uh, I think uh, markets here, the American people, and the international community are going to start uh, reacting adversely uh, fairly quickly.
13: What the president said there is true, and he believes it, and time is short and the river's rising, and when the markets recognize that this is going to turn, and it's going to turn quickly and badly against the United States of America in a relatively irreversible way, then what do you do with a problem like John Boehner? Last night on this show, John Stanton, political reporter at Roll Call, said that the number of Republicans in the House who've decided it does not matter if we default, the number of denialists that this is any sort of a big deal, is rising now. That House Republicans laughed a Republican economist out of a meeting with them recently when he said default would in fact be a bad thing. We are now really facing catastrophe without raising this debt ceiling. And House Republicans seem to be getting less likely to do it, not more likely, no matter what sort of happy talk is happening in the other half of Washington over in the Senate. So what happens now? President Obama has to be thinking what President Clinton rather forcibly put into words today. Former President Clinton says that he would invoke the so-called constitutional option to raise the nation's debt ceiling quote, without hesitation and force the courts to stop me in order to prevent a default should Congress and the President fail to achieve agreement before the August 2nd deadline. Reported by Joe Connison today at National Memo. Happy talk coming out of Washington and gangs of senators all getting along with the president now is nice. It is, in fact, happy talk. But being realistic about this means getting real about the craziness in Washington right now, too. The denialists. Faced with that, can the president lift the debt ceiling on his own if that's what it will take to save the country from economic irreversible catastrophe?
17: From the boot heel of Missouri, I was calling about the one two three four class war episode I was listening to, and it got me thinking about unions and workers' rights. And I was thinking about it, and I have similar issues when it comes to these people. I have a job where I wait tables. My money comes in from people. My business does not pay me a paycheck because, I mean, I make more than what they could pay me. So anyways, they like to take out money from our paychecks that we don't get somehow. And uh, we average this out. Between all the workers there, they make about $40,000. They try doing things like this, skimp on money. Other things may be like taking away vacation checks from us, like by saying, if you did not work 1,800 hours this year, you don't get a vacation check instead of saying after this year, if you don't work 1,800 hours, you will not get a vacation check. I wonder if other people have the same problem because I don't feel like I'm treated fairly at my job and I'm sure everybody else does. If I talk to them, they all have the same argument, but we don't really know where to go. Who do we call for rights? Uh, Waiters union, um, it's damn near impossible to get a union going at the restaurant by asking people to petition behind the company's back because if they do find out, they will give some reason why they have to let you go unrelated to the petition. I'm lost. Could you maybe make an episode or at least give us a direction because I'm sure there's a million other people out there that feel my pain. Thank you for your time. Bye.
2: Hey, uh, Your idea at the end of the Words of the Business show About a progressive talking Point aggregator uh, Was you know, Very interesting um, it, It's shockingly Parallel to uh, I guess what you'd uh, move on org and uh, Van Jones uh, Has pulled together for the The idea of rebuilding The American dream where uh, I think it's very uh, 2012 campaign focus looking for the best ideas and there's a voting system and there's going to be a, uh, published, you know, contracts for rebuilding the American dream that hopefully progressives can sign on to as part of the election. I'm curious, uh, what your thoughts on the possible success of that kind of a model in, uh, in politics is, not just in punditry. And if, uh, if you were but yeah, if, if just if your thoughts on that because uh, I was not sure what to think of it. I uh, participated, but uh, yeah, the, the Roy Rogers quote kept springing to mind throughout the uh, throughout the exercise and the meeting. So, anyhow, uh, I, I'd like to know what you think. So, uh, throw that on one of the next end of episode segments, if you could. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Now, I am going to respond to the second voicemail we heard today. The caller asked that I give my opinion on whether or not uh, this sort of collective uh, thinking – Can work, and uh, so before I give my opinion, I'm going to play a clip from Van Jones' speech that he gave at Netroots Nation. This is where he announced the Rebuilding the American Dream project. Uh, I was there, it just so happens, so I saw this speech live, and I'm going to play just a couple of minutes of it that kind of addresses this particular topic, and it is what I found to be kind of the most interesting
10: part of his 30-minute speech, so have a listen. I've studied the Tea Party. I want you to know something. There is no Tea Party. There is no Tea Party. You can't go to Washington, D.C. and go to the Tea Party headquarters building. Buzz on the buzzer. Go into the lobby. Steal a mint. Because that's what you do. (laughs) Chat up the receptionist and asked to talk to the president of the Tea Party. Why not? There is no headquarters, there is no lobby, there is no receptionist, there is no mint, and there is no president of the Tea Party. This is an open source brand that 3,528 affiliates have agreed to use, but nobody owns. They operate off of an operating system called the Contract From America. The Contract From America was written by 100,000 people as a wiki. Check this, this is an upgrade. They talk, here's the hypocrisy, the irony. They talk rugged individualism. That's their whole shtick, right? This is a tea party. If you had a problem, don't look to the government. Just be more rugged and more individual, and your problem will be solved. That's their shtick, rugged individualism. But they have enacted the most collectivist strategy for taking power in the history of the Republic because they use an open source meta brand that they all share, they wrote their document as a wiki, and they're based on a principle and a value. And as a result, you now live in their world 24 months after you thought we had changed everything. Here's the irony. They talk rugged individualism. They act collectively. Where am I going? Where am I going? We talk kumbaya. We talk solidarity forever. We talk, can't we all get along? But we have not enacted the most individualistic approach to politics.
0: So the question to me again was, do I think that this sort of model is uh, capable of working in in the real world in politics? And my answer is that it has as good or better chance of working than what we're doing right now. Uh, You know, I have seen the silo effect uh, where, you know, different groups and different uh, uh, focuses on what what sort of politics and policies they're uh, focusing on. They get so uh, so focused on, on their own thing that they have no connection to any other progressive groups that are like minded and you know 95% of, of all their thinking is crossover. And you know there's just not communication between those. I've seen that up close and personal. And one other thing that Van Jones talked about several times in that long speech is uh, the, the horrors of coalition politics. This is something else I have also seen up close and personal. Uh, I, I saw it in, uh, you know, my, my old job working for a climate change nonprofit. Of course, uh, you know, small nonprofit. Part and parcel of what they did was to form coalitions with, uh, with partners to, you know, do the various uh, things they do and run the campaigns they ran. But before that, even I was a, a part of a podcasting coalition, just a coalition of independent podcasters. Which was disastrous. Uh, you know, it uh, it was one of the most stressful and harrowing experiences of my young life, and uh, it ended very badly. <laughs> so, you know, I'm I'm familiar with all the things he's talking about, and any any strategy that we can take to get us away from where we are and into some other uh, direction that leads to more, you know, uh, cohesion in a variety of ways is is a absolutely worthwhile effort. So that's gonna be it for today. I just wanna thank a couple of members who helped support the show. Robert D. signed up for a Leftist monthly membership back on September 22nd of last year, and Sherry L. signed up for a Leftist yearly membership, paid for a full year in advance, and uh, did that on September 2nd of last year. So huge thanks to Robert and Sherry and all the members and donors who helped keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys, so thank you very, very much. Of course, everyone can help support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
11: Girl, black and
2: white Who took apart a picture That wasn't right
8: Pitch burning On a shining sheet the only